0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Macro Trading Floor. This show is brought to you by Public.com.
1: You will hear more about Public.com later in the show, but for now,
0: let's get to the episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf speaking, the founder of the Macro Compass. And with me, as always,
1: Andreas Steno, the founder of Steno Research. Again, Lots of CEOs in the studio today, People <laughs> well, People ridicule us for that every week, but um, <laughs> let's continue saying it just for the sake of that. Alf, um, I read AJP Morgan headline yesterday stating that the new lending program being put in place by the Federal Reserve in response to the crisis in Silicon Valley Bank and First Republican banks and, and, and other banks um, is bound to increase the balance sheet of the fed by 2 trillion wow i mean is this qe is it not qe twitter was on fire this week based on this jp morgan headline so why don't we start with a discussion on the new fed lending program and the response to silicon valley bank yes last week
0: what do you make of that
1: new lending program
0: So the Federal Reserve balance sheet increased by about 300 billion or something like that over a week, uh, which is the equivalent of three to four months of QT basically being offset in a week, which obviously uh, sends people nuts because, you know, everybody's talking about uh, basically this is the new QE, not QE, like the repo injections in 2019 were considered to be QE, not QE. Okay, so let's talk about the program, what it does in the first place. It basically allows banks not to be forced sellers of the safest collateral in the world, which is treasuries, in order to meet deposit outflows. Because if deposit outflows are happening, Andreas, what you need to do is you need to liquidate assets or find a way to make them liquid so you can service your deposit outflows. Well, there are two ways. You either sell them, which in this case means crystallizing losses if you have not hedged your interest rate risk, and we will talk about that as well later, or you can try to lend them to somebody and raise money to service your deposit outflows in a repo uh, exchange, for example. And now the Fed is saying, don't sell them. The collateral is worth 100. I don't care what the price is. If it's 80 cents, 70 cents, to me, it's worth 100. So post it at the Fed Post it to me and I'll give you funding. How expensive for how long? Well, Fed funds plus 10 basis points. How expensive is that? If a bank wants to issue, uh, you know, senior bonds, they normally pay Fed funds plus 50, 100 basis points at least, depending on the tenor. So it's, I guess, as cheap as it can reasonably be from a funding perspective, and it's for one year. Uh, term. So it's also relatively long funding from this perspective. The thing is, you don't need to take the loss anymore as a bank. If your problem is solely driven by meeting deposit outflows and you have a treasury portfolio, you don't need to sell it anymore. You can post it at the Fed, get the funding done and service your deposit outflows this way. That's yeah. what the program does. And it includes treasuries, agencies, and mortgage-backed
1: securities, as far as I'm concerned, right? Alf? So it's a pretty broad range of collateral that they will accept at par value.
0: Yes, and this is important because obviously what the Fed is trying to do here is ensure what regulators already wrote in laws seven, eight years ago, which is regulators forced banks to own large amounts of bonds on their balance sheet because of regulation, right? Liquidity coverage ratio and so on. When they said treasuries, particularly, we'll talk about MBS as well later, but treasuries are the same as cash from a regulatory perspective because they have 0% liquidity haircuts and 0% risk weights, which means you don't need to attach any capital under as a provision against future losses, no capital attached to these treasuries, no liquidity haircuts, they basically told banks, you can buy as many treasuries as you want, from a regulatory perspective, they'll be treated exactly as cash. So guess what, Andreas? Because treasuries yield more than reserves at the Fed, generally speaking, especially five, 10-year treasuries, banks just went out there and bought them, right? And now the Fed is making true on the statement of regulators, which is 0% liquidity haircuts 0% capital attached to that, which is basically, hey, if you want to turn these treasuries into real liquidity, you can do that. Post the treasuries to us, we'll give you no haircuts whatsoever. You don't take a capital loss, a PNL loss, and no liquidity haircuts. So, assuming that they had launched this
1: new lending scheme with a haircut on bonds that were underwater already, it could actually have led to a further flight away from, from these bonds from a signaling uh, value perspective, since it would have been. Um, a new kind of communication from the authorities in relation to how safe the collateral is uh, from a, a cash perspective, if you know what I
0: mean. You know, this reminds me a bit of the UK pension fund story. It's very, very similar. So what happened there is that these pension funds had margin calls on the derivatives, on the swaps. They had the safe collateral, the gilts, on the balance sheet, but actually it was very tricky for them to find repo counterparties where to post these gilts that they had, raise cash, and meet the margin calls. The uh, Let's say the alternative was that they could post the bonds, the safe collateral, at the Bank of England and raise the cash like that, but there was no facility in place for anything like that. So what this led instead, Andreas, was exactly the cascading effect you're describing. Pension funds were then forced to liquidate any assets they had, including the safe collateral, like gilts, To raise the cash to meet the margin calls or otherwise they would be defaulted. This is exactly a very, very similar setup here. And what the regulator and the central bank does is like, no, we don't want the fire sale of the safest collateral in the world. If we define it as safe collateral, we'll guarantee that it is. So post it at the Fed and you'll get the funding done. And that's what the program is about. And It's already been used only four days in action by, I think, what was the number? Over 10 billion, I think. The discount window was used much more simply because it's available anyway and it was available before the program was set up. There is a stigma attached to the discount window from the great financial crisis, Uh, but I think banks had only that very clear alternative to try and raise money by posting collateral at the Fed, and they took that opportunity to do that before... The new program was set up the new program is probably even stronger yeah
1: it is but elf the question now is whether we could view this as a new round of quote-unquote easing in uh, monetary terms um, it's been an ongoing discussion since the autumn uh, in the uk whether the um the decision from Bank of England to basically step in uh, and backstop the bond market was some kind of eff- effective move away from tightening policy and uh, towards a more neutral and even uh, potentially an, a dovish stance. Is this a hint that the Fed is leaning in another direction in in net-net terms? Well, I think they were forced to take this decision, obviously. Um, they, they could simply couldn't uh, allow this to unfold without taking the decision. Uh, I think it was the right thing to do. But is it deliberate easing? No. Uh, it's not. Um, and the question is now next week whether they pair it with continued interest rate hikes as Bank of England has done with, with their backstopping. Uh, and I think that's the likely scenario by now that they continue hiking interest rates while they still
0: backstop the market. Andres, let me turn back the question to you for a second. Mm. Give me your take. Is this QE? And why is that, why would you compare this balance sheet increase to QE or is it not QE and why? Well, the thing you could argue here is that by
1: backstopping the bond market, you also automatically add a positive impulse to the bond market from a practical perspective as it incentivizes bond buying relative to a scenario without this lending program being in in place so i think from from that perspective uh you could argue that it is at least some kind of indirect stimulus at least relative to a scenario without the lending program in uh, in place but it is not permanent in nature um and that is a very big difference relative to a qe purchase of a bond so take the 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 very practical difference here uh in qe the fed buys a bond with no basically no communicated time horizon on when to expect that bond not to be on the fed balance sheet anymore this is a loan with a bond as collateral with a one-year horizon so the time horizons of those two um instruments are very
0: different i think that's to me, the major difference between the two. Excellent. I couldn't summarize it any way better. The main difference is that when you do QE, you take duration out of the market in a permanent way, semi-permanent way, at least until very much later in the future, at a very undefined time in the future, you are going to start selling back securities to the market actively or shrinking your balance sheet again. And you're take, so that means you're taking collateral away in a semi permanent perspective from from a market um, point of view, and now you're doing something very different. Now you are taking collateral in from a notional collateral perspective. you are taking collateral in and you're lending against it, which is a completely different argument to taking duration out of the market in an indefinite way or semi indefinite way so the, the main difference is basically this is indeed a collateral exchange that is designed to make sure that the collateral holds its value. From a market standpoint, it's, uh, it's something very interesting, I think, because people, I think, fail to understand that the entire banking system and the entire credit system is based on, um, the very concept that treasuries are safe collateral yes. I mean treasuries are the basis for everything we do from repo, reverse repo, so this big um, oiling machine that allows a lot of counterparties to lend money against each other in a skewed way, to pricing up loans, pricing up mortgages. I mean, treasuries must be safe collateral in the way we have designed the system. So central banks are just trying to ensure that that is the case. Now I'm gonna ask you a question though, Andreas. If you have some sort of credit stress in the system, or at least Weaker banks are a bit under trouble. You see Santander Bank that had to pull away an auto asset-backed security issuance because of credit stress. And you are trying to make safe collateral safer. That's what you're trying to do now. You're really strengthening that power of collateral. Are we looking into a bifurcation maybe where money is gonna fly towards the safest balance sheet, the safest collateral? And it's going to dry up instead for the weaker credit structures in our economy. I think that that is a decently fair
1: assumption. Um, what what I I, th- I fear two things on the back of uh, of this new lending program. Um, the first thing I fear is that the next targets of a potential bank run could be banks with a very very small uh, bond book. Relative to their exposure uh, towards for example commercial real estate which which is taken in water um, if if you have such a balance sheet cocktail, then you don 't have a large notional to um, to post as eligible uh, collateral in the lending program while you still have a toxic uh, liability side uh, so that 's one thing I fear um, the second thing I fear is that you end up this maybe even distorting um, the the risk curve if you know what i mean from from a um from a market perspective by by essentially securing that some assets um will be taken in to par while other assets that do not qualify will not be uh, taking in as taken in as collateral to par uh, so i think there are some potential distortions, market distortions out of this but it's 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 probably preferable to not doing it anyway.
0: I understand where you're coming from. I'm also wondering whether lending standards were already tightening way before this happened, right? I mean, we're in the part of the cycle where the private sector finds borrowing costs pretty hard to face and then they basically cannot lend, cannot borrow that cheaply as they were doing before. And banks are more on the on the lookout, right, uh, for more bankruptcies, for you know more more macro slowdown kind of environment. So credit standards were already tightening, and now obviously, if you're a bank, I don't think you get a green light to go out and lend aggressively, right? In this environment, you'll probably be looking to repair your balance sheets as much as possible and play it very safe. So what I'm saying is, I'm afraid that from a macro perspective, this is the disinflationary uh, pulse um, that could come on top of what I think was already, um, a recession upcoming in the next few quarters, the fact that credit rise up even further going forward, um, mm. maybe makes that conviction even stronger. This is more from a medium term take. So I think people are now scared about the liquidity situation of banks. But in reality, as you did some work on it, it's the credit exposure of some banks that is a bit more tricky, especially commercial real estate and leveraged real estate products. And as credit flows less towards these fringes of the market, also because of the banking stress we're seeing now, it might just accelerate this snowball effect. Yeah. So I've been saying
1: uh, throughout this year that um, a lot of these forward-looking indicators hinted of a recession. uh, But I constantly referred to uh, a long history of recessions we need some kind of trigger uh, and could this be a trigger event for the ultimate recession and i th- i think that the answer to that is yes uh, it has the potential to be the trigger event since uh, some of the um, things that you describe happen on the back of such a trigger event we need something to uh, to sort of um trigger the, the 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 recessionary vibes that we've been looking into for basically a couple of quarters at least right so if we um if we look a bit ahead uh, my assumption would be that lending standards will be tightened even more than what we've already seen due to this uh and that you should be on the watch for banks with a um a very large uh and concentrated exposure towards sort of riskier segments in such a uh, scenario here, including commercial real estate. And you find some, I mean, first of all, 80% of all lending to commercial real estate is done by these small and medium-sized banks in the US. So it's a very concentrated risk in this layer below $250 billion of assets. Um, And some of these regional banks have uh, in between 50 and 60% uh, of their total loan exposure uh, towards... This, uh, this corner of the market, which is very, very concentrated. Um, and I mean, one thing uh, that I find interesting with the US banking system is that you find so many banks with very niche lending books, very concentrated towards specific things. And uh, I mean, you've uh, been working inside the machinery of a bank for many years. That is probably the worst thing you can do, (laughs) to have a very concentrated lending book, because I mean, you just need some external trigger for that corner of the market, then you're done. Yields on T-bills are surging and they are now the highest seen in decades. If you want to invest in this uncertain environment, there is now an easy alternative
0: that yields a decent return. Public.com has introduced a treasury account product, which as we speak yields close to 5%. It's easy and flexible to park your cash in this product. You can go to public.com slash macro
1: trading floor if you want to check it out and find the link below in the show notes.
0: Andreas, the problem is the perspective that people have lost between 2014 and 2021 interest rates in europe for example were for most part of this long seven to eight years period zero or negative banks in europe had a very hard time passing negative interest rates to depositors which means they were simply bleeding margins they were getting deposits in at zero percent and risk-free assets were yielding negative great so how do you solve that andreas you move out the risk curve. I mean, what what are you supposed to do otherwise? So you start lending to more leveraged products in the real estate space. You buy more uh, yeah, risky products on the asset side. You do some leveraged loans. You do some CLOs. You do some mortgage-backed securities. You take some risks, basically, right? And it's easy to say now with hindsight, well, there was too much risk being taken in, in the banking sector on these products. And please remember, this is not... The banking stress we're talking about now we're talking about the liquidity side and the and i are now moving the focus on the credit side which we both think is very underestimated as, as a true problem but look basically there was no alternative so european banks but also us small banks loaded up on these risks because rates were negative for a while and that's not to excuse them but that's what the incentive scheme was and then you find out that you know this could be actually a problem. I'm also impressed by the fact that the, the first central bank that came to the wires, which is the European Central Bank, with the decision to make after this banking stress, hiked 50 basis points, Andreas. Yeah. <laughs> which is what I expected. Um, well, I went on Bloomberg TV the morning and they asked the straight question. Is the ECB gonna hike 50 basis points? And I was like, okay, what am I going to say now? Some, some strategist answer like, oh, there's a 50% chance. And I just said, yes, they're going to hike 50 basis point. And then I thought, oh my God, this, this can look bad, (laughs) but I was lucky they did. Uh, but the, the, what do you make of the central bank reaction function? That's what everybody wants to know. Are they going to detach their monetary policy from the perceived financial stability risks or not?
1: Well. It certainly sounded like the ECB detached it, so <laughs> that's uh, I mean checkmark uh, in front of the ECB. Um, and if you look at the ECB mandate, I think it's the right thing for them to do. Um, it is hard to argue that with inflation running in some cases uh, 15 to 18 percentage points above target. If you look at the Baltic countries that you should put more emphasis on financial stability risks relative to inflation already now um and therefore i also think that the ecb is the most likely central bank to continue hiking interest rates in this environment also much more likely than the fed if i were to rank it Uh, because the fed mandate is slightly more broad in nature and therefore it is easier for them to to argue that financial stability risks need to be considered for example from an employment uh, perspective um so um my answer is yes when it comes to the ECB, they will have an easier time detaching it while i think the fed will have to acknowledge it to a probably a bit more uh, concrete extent next week even though they will hide 25 basis points and now i dare saying it (laughs)
0: <laughs> now I'm gonna make a rant on um, European banks against U.S. banks. I'll, can you can you can you handle my rant for a few minutes, Andreas? Yes. Okay. Thank you. So uh, the U.S. accounting regulatory framework is, to say the least, not great. It has some uh, some loopholes here and there the three most impressive ones are this $250 billion limit. I mean, like, guys, the third largest bank in Germany has a balance sheet below $200 billion. I repeat, the third largest bank in Germany. So 250 billion is not a small bank. It can be a reasonably sized bank, and you are not making them subject to liquidity coverage ratio, net stable funding ratio, and that's already bad. In Europe, you don't have such a thing. In Europe, you don't have that. You need to respect these rules. Then you have, (laughs) the other thing I found interesting is this health to maturity story, because there has been a lot of chatter about that. So let me be very clear. The rule in the US is that accountants have made it so that it's very inconvenient to hedge the interest rate risk in health to maturity bonds. Why? Because you buy a bond, you put it in L to maturity, the profit and the losses on these bonds don't go through the income statement of the bank, don't go through capital, don't go through p don't go anywhere. If you want to hedge the interest rate risk that economically exists, however you decide to look at it by an accounting perspective, you do a swap. The swap is a derivative. So as a derivative, it normally goes through the p Unless the accounting says, the regulator says, well, just use the swap, attach it to the bond, we'll treat it as a hedge instrument, okay? The U.S. says, yes, for available for sale instruments, we'll do that, for health to maturity, nope. So if you wanna do a swap against a bond in health to maturity, the swap will float through your PNL, which will cause a lot of volatility to results of the banks, and banks don't want that, which means the regulator has incentivized banks not to hedge the interest rate risk in h m bonds in the U.S., which I find ridiculous. And in Europe, that's not the case. So in Europe, if you have an l to maturity bond, you can attach a swap to it and the regulator will say, yeah, yeah, accounting-wise is fine. I see that the swap hedges a bond. In the US, the incentive scheme is wrong. If you buy an l to maturity bond, you are incentivized not to hedge it, which is
1: nuts. And this is um, so-called classic hedge accounting. Uh, and I think you're right that we have better rules in, in Europe in relation to, to hedge accounting. So the derivative will simply be realized via the other comprehensive income in the P&L statement uh, in the US if you hedge a to maturity bond and uh, the whole maturity basket of bonds was essentially what got uh, Silicon Valley Bank into trouble uh, when they had to realize that uh, after a deposit flight.
0: Um, and I have a last rant. Can yes. I go on with you the biggest rant of them all? Yes. Go on Twitter. There is a, <laughs> no, I mean, I have to reflect how to say this politely. <sighs> there are so many bad takes out there. The The biggest one is that the interest rate risk that banks are running, it's all in the health to maturity bonds. That's the only thing you need to look at, all the rest doesn't matter, which is complete bullshit because a bank has assets, liabilities, and swaps. So basically what a bank does is it takes long-term assets, so long-term duration risk on the asset side, including loans, mortgages, bonds they buy, any asset they have, they have long-term liabilities. Please remember against that. So that's an offsetting item already. If a bank issues a 10-year bond, for instance, that is, this is offsetting a 10-year investment. Assuming all of this is an edge, and that's wrong because there is a huge amount of swaps being used at the bank level on the asset side, on the liability side, as an offsetting instrument as well to the net exposure. So the real metric to look at, if you want to see how a bank is exposed to the real interest rate risk on the entire balance sheet would be to stress the entire balance sheet of the bank for a 200 basis point move in interest rates, the entire balance sheet, not only the health to maturity bonds, which represent only a small portion of that. And now the rent, because in Europe we do that. In Europe we have a thing called IRRBB, stress test, and a thing called the supervisory outlier test, which are basically The regulator forcing European banks to do this exercise, Andreas. They must stress their balance sheet. Assets, liabilities, swaps, everything to move up in interest rates and report on it and tell the the regulator how much capital gets wiped away at a balance sheet level from higher interest rates. The US, of course, doesn't have a stress test like that. And the IMF also called them out and they say, guys, I mean, what the heck? Like, you should force banks to report on this. And they don't. So, Elf, let
1: me rant for a second after sure. that, because um, there are so many bad takes. You're, you're you're absolutely spot on in that. I even received a couple of um, very angry messages in my inbox saying that, Andreas, you've been suggesting to buy bonds a couple of times last year. That is exactly what Silicon Valley Bank did, so you're partly to blame more on this, right? Uh, point being that um, a lot of people have blamed the Fed for its transitory... Um, inflation rhetoric in relation to this saying that well um all of this transitory talk convinced banks not to hedge their interest rate risk because essentially you were told that uh, rates would not go up let me just say something very clear here i could understand that argument if you ran a hedge fund or an asset manager where you have an agreement with your clients that you're taking risks on behalf of them this is not what a bank is designed for on aggregate to take net risk on behalf of your depositors. Um, So, I mean, that's a very, it's a very different thing to run an asset manager and a bank. When you run an asset manager, you have an agreement with your client to take a risk. And therefore you could of course bet on falling rates, but uh, you cannot bet on falling rates to the extent that Silicon Valley Bank did
0: with a good taste in your mouth. Yes, that's correct. Um, A prudent bank stresses the entire balance sheet for the net exposure to higher interest rate risks, try to keep, tries to keep that metric contained. For reference, even in the US, banks are not forced to stress that. JP Morgan does that, and it publishes the results on the annual reports. And a 200, 300 basis point move up in rates, including some flattening of the curve hits J.P. Morgan capital, it does, obviously, because it's a bank, so in most cases, higher interest rates will hurt the capital of the bank, but will benefit the future income, by the way, of the bank, because you can buy assets at higher yield, lock them in, and later on, you'll make more money on the the carry of these bonds, but it hits the capital of the bank. You wanna know by how much? J.P. Morgan says about seven to eight billion hit. You wanna know what's the capital of J.P. Morgan? $270 billion. So you're talking about a 5% hit, and now JP Morgan Morgan must have done a great job, maybe other banks take a 10% hit, but my point is, if you only look at the health to maturity bond losses, only those could wipe out 13% of JP Morgan's capital. That's why it is misleading to look at one item of the balance sheet, guys. You need to look at the entire balance sheet, including offsetting items, including swaps, so it's not as simple and it's instead very easy to just go around and scream that, uh, the entire banking system is dead. There are, there are vulnerable banks though out there because of the business model, as we discussed already last week, but, um, do your homework on the entire balance sheet of the bank and regulators as well should step up their game. Eh? So Elf, um,
1: now we reach a really, really interesting discussion point because as you perfectly described, European legislation is tighter when it comes to both stress tests and um, liquidity, uh, the liquidity apparatus, basically, of a bank compared to the US. Um, and as of now, when we record, this issue is, as far as we are concerned, mostly a Swiss and a US issue. Um, but I've noted that both um, windows so the vice president of the European Central Bank, but also the Estonian member this morning, very sort of almost explicitly said that we only have a few banks that could have run um, similar kinds of risks here in Europe. So it is almost as they have heard some, I don't know, something about a few banks having issues. So would, would
0: you exclude that this could turn into a Eurozone issue as well? No, you can't exclude it because as in the US, uh, you will have some banks that have done their own work much worse than others. Mm. Um, actually you can do some work and I've done it on the macro compass to find out which banks they are, because it's, it's, it's a stress test. So you can do the work, the data are there. You can actually see the entire balance sheet stressed out of European banks. And then you need to take some more things into consideration. So at an aggregate level in Europe, if you stress the balance sheet of the banks for higher interest rate risks banks are doing fine. They they take a hit of about 50, 60 basis point of tier one capital ratio. So about you know, six, seven, 8% of capital overall, roughly speaking. It's quite a hit, don't get me wrong. It's not like nothing, but it's, it doesn't wipe out half of the capital of a bank. Like people go around and say on Bank of America, ah, look at the health to maturity losses. They wipe out half of the capital. Yeah, what about all the offsetting stuff? Right, so, okay. There are some banks, though, in Europe where the distribution is not like um, all concentrated in the mean. The tail is, can, there can be three or four banks in Europe that haven't done an amazing job in doing this. Now let's discuss this for a second as well, Andreas, because one thing is to have a capital loss if you would monetize all the losses on your balance sheet, because th- these losses you know, lower your capital, but if you crystallize them, if you're forced to crystallize them, then they hit your PNL, and And then you have a Silicon Valley bank kind of problem when it becomes a cascading effect, right? So it's not immediate because if some of these losses can be somehow sterilized, for instance, by posting bonds at the central bank, for instance, so, so you don't need to sell the bonds anymore, but you can lend them out, then it's not immediate to say, okay, then also these banks will go down. Let me let me rephrase. If Silicon, Silicon Valley Bank was a terrible business model in the first place, so maybe that, 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 that couldn't be saved. I don't know. But if the facility was in place before, then even Silicon Valley Bank could have posted basically all their bond portfolio to the Fed and got funding. And even if $40 billion would have been uh, taken away as deposits, the Fed would have funded Silicon Valley Bank for $40 billion. So by now, Silicon Valley Bank wouldn't be down yet. They would they would be compressed in margins because they would pay on the funding side over four percent, and on the asset side they would have stuff locked in at one and a half percent. So that doesn't that's that does not that's not great. But at least that wouldn't be gone under. It's
1: kind of what the Swiss authorities have done with Credit Suisse as well, right? 50 billion back stuff. Um to me probably only prolonging <laughs> the slow death, but um I, I it's obviously hard to say as of now. Uh The question here elf is uh whether a liquidity story turns into a credit story ultimately and i think that is what you need to be on the watch for now because uh let's let's just be honest here one of the reasons why we've seen a slow decline um now turning into a more rapid decline in deposits in banks is that the safe yielding alternative in short-term bills uh, has been pretty decent uh, yeah. since deposit rates at banks haven't sort of followed uh, one-to-one the increases that we've seen in short-term interest rates uh, and I don't think you have a worse case than a couple of weeks ago to tell <laughs> uh, regular people to move into bills instead of having the body parked at a deposit I mean it's an easy story to sell now uh and the spread story is there um, so I think on a running basis, at least as long as, at, as the hiking cycle is, is ongoing, we should expect continued deposit flight on an
0: aggregate basis. Yeah. Well, this was already justifiable before the crisis yes. because money market funds and T-bills were yielding four 5% and bank deposits weren't. So now you're basically forcing banks to fight more for deposits. And again, I want to make sure that people understand there are some weak links. There are, yeah. there are small unregulated regional banks in the U S. Some of them might have acted as cowboys. Yeah? <laughs> there are also in the large banks in the US and in Europe, even the regulated small banks in Europe, you will, have, you will find some banks that haven't done their own works properly, which means they're more exposed to higher interest rate risk from a capital perspective. So the point is some of these banks might be overexposed to the problem On the other hand, if it's all about liquidating assets to meet deposit outflows, we now have a strong program from the Fed that avoids banks, stops banks from doing that. It should kind of stabilize at least that angle. Overall, liquidity is not going to be the reason, in my opinion, why this turns into a systemic banking crisis. Credit risk on the balance sheet of banks could but we are not talking about that yet. Now, we are not talking about the exposure of commercial real estate, we're focusing on the liquidity side. And I think that story needs much more nuance than people are uh, putting to it right now. But I,
1: once the chart that made the rounds during the week uh, and I've, I'm have i also guilty of posting it myself, is the one week change to, for example, two year interest rates mm-hmm. on, the, um, on US government bonds relative to other uh, very historic crisis moments. And say um, at 9-11, be it uh, around the Lehman um, default and and other events, the one-week move was actually smaller than the one-week move we've seen over the past week here. So it is historic in many ways. And um, I guess you could argue that this is a trigger event for credit stress further down the road and that that would be my assumption now and and that's I don't think that we will see it immediately but I think we will see it in three six months at the latest
0: I think that's a very fair summary let's see what Powell does next week again I think he will try to detach monetary policy from financial stability risks uh, try to sound confident on the situation as much as he can a bit what Lagarde did yesterday I would say this is my take Uh, at the time being what does it mean is it 25 or 50 well the data that has come in is mildly supportive of both cases i mean i think 25 is more reasonable because the data hasn't come in unanimous oh my god i can't speak english too much hot all at once um So, you know, there are reasons. You could say wage growth has slowed. You could say participation rate has gone up, right? So you could Mm -hmm. find ways to say, we don't need to do 50. Uh, But I think mm, what matters the most is not 25 or 50. It's how Powell goes in the press conference. He will be bombarded with questions about the banking crisis. So it's all about how how he reacts to that, really. It's the most important part. It is indeed, and you could actually argue that we've
1: almost had Goldilocks data out of the US while we've been discussing this liquidity crisis. I mean, no one noticed that the purchase, uh, purchase producer price index um, dropped on a monthly basis, uh, which is typically a one, two month leading indicator for the consumer price index. Um, It was a very, very, very soft reading. Um, And it happened while we were all watching Credit Suisse and stuff like that, uh, (laughs) so no one cared. and at the same time, uh, for example, housing starts have started rebounding quite materially in the U.S. Uh, in recent weeks. And I mean, it's—I don't know what to make of it right now. But uh, one one thing I I am I'm getting more and more convinced of is that I think it's an okay idea to have some exposure towards duration in bonds in the West over the next twelve months. After mm-hmm. this, I I, wow. I, th- I think that is
0: getting more, and more know, it's thing again i'm looking at a 100 basis point of cuts being priced between june and december yeah. this year in the us i'm like whoa okay uh, this higher for longer story was becoming a bit too entrenched at some point before the banking crisis where we were pricing the fed never to cut rates fed funds above 5% for 2 years i mean like heavy stuff but now we're pricing a 100 basis point cuts between june and december that's like it happens from a macro perspective, well, it's it's almost impossible because even if you get a recession starting in two months, Andreas, then hundred basis point means that the recession must do some heavy um, work on cutting, you know, on, on reducing the, the strength of the labor market and you need to have inflation coming down really rapidly for the Fed to cut the hundred basis point and validate the forwards from a macro perspective. The other way that this could happen is if you really get a banking crisis. If you get a banking crisis, then it's not only 100, they can cut a lot more if they think that this is the the, the thing that solves the problem, right? But we are talking some serious risk premia, basically being built into the front end of the curves right now. And you can still make money on those, if you go long bonds, but at these levels, but you need to be then sure that you either get a solid, strong recession starting as soon as possible with this price is already in, or that this turns into a banking crisis. Otherwise at these levels with a hundred basis point cuts priced in six months, you know, the odds are against you. Let's say you bleed away. If this situation gets somehow sorted out in a month or two, then Mm. there is no reason to keep pricing in a hundred basis point of cuts.
1: Sure. I, I perfectly agree with that, but, um, let me also put it like this, with such pricing in forwards, a cutting cycle has always started. Um, so I'm, I'm tempted to say that it would be very, very tricky to argue that Mr. Market is wrong, but um, let's see.
0: Well, as uh, you can say that uh, two-year treasury yields guide what the Fed does, right? They, they, they yeah. tell the Fed whether to hike or whether to cut. I think, look, at this point, Powell is not in control of the narrative. On monetary policy. Um, he needs to try and regain control because, you know, credibility and control is what central banks are all about. So if I were him, I will try to, you know, try to regain some control of the narrative uh, on monetary policy and detach it from financial stability risks. I think that's what he will try to do. Let's see, Andreas. Let yeah. me, do uh, you want to say something else?
1: No. Um, I think that is, that is a perfect um, setup for watching Powell next
0: wednesday so let me ask you after this 40 minutes of conversation where we are barely touched upon the real issues in the banking sector if people want to know more about your work where can they find it uh,
1: i've done a lot of work on everything from credit Suisse to the european uh, banking system and also uh small and medium-sized US banks with uh, large exposures to corners of the credit market that you should probably watch and you can find it on Uh, StenoResearch.com. is also a link in the description below uh, the podcast and on YouTube.
0: So these are very uncertain times out there in macro, Um, in banking. It impacts your portfolio, your decisions, etc. I try to do my best to give you a data-driven nuanced take and analysis on what's going on. It's on the macrocompass.com. And said that, Andreas, I think will be back, I think I'm sure we'll be back next Sunday with a take on our friend Mr. Powell and let's see if we get another exciting week probably yes. and I, I can guarantee you I will stay put in Copenhagen in
1: front of my screens next week because I um, had some traveling planned this week I was in Spain to visit clients and oh boy it is the worst timing I've ever had for a client right. trip because I mean the clients had no time to see me and I was stressed completely because I had to take calls and all that kind of stuff on, on the road so um, yeah. I will stay put in front of screen all through next week
0: good idea good idea (laughs) talk soon guys